Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, back in studio here with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Got a special episode this week. It's going to be a little bit different because it is election season here in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, Election day is coming up on May 8th, but early voting is already underway. So part of this podcast is going to be dedicated to electioneering on my part. And then we'll have a rundown of criminal justice fuckery. And then in the back third of the episode, I have an interview with the elected district attorney for Durham, Roger Eccles. So we'll have that as well. Before we get into all of that fun stuff, though, I've got two podcast notes. Uh, First, I mentioned a couple podcasts back that we were going to be changing one of the Patreon rewards. We were bringing back... Uh, the what had previously been called Samson Sponsors. We rebranded it as the Show Notes Sponsors, uh, putting y'all's names in the show notes for every episode and, of course, giving you access to the normal Patreon content. That has been done as of last week. What I did not think to check is that some of y'all might not want your names on the show notes. So if that is the case, send me a message on Patreon. Until then, I'm leaving you there just in case. Uh, But if you decide that you don't want your name in a Google index search of all of our uh, prior episodes in the future, just kind of keep that in mind. Also, we now have more subscribers in California than we do in North Carolina. I knew that day was coming because California, of course, is the largest state in the country. Uh, North Carolina is only, I think, eighth or ninth. But we have, if my count is right, roughly 183 subscribers in California, only 172 in North Carolina. And the other 13, 1400 of you are strewn across the globe. Uh, so if you happen to know any North Carolina listeners, convince them to tune in. Because while I love having a national and indeed global podcast, uh, I also like knowing that folks in my backyard listen to it so that when I cover some of the politics here in a minute, it's actually getting to people that can vote in the elections that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into that. Oh, sorry, I forgot. Thank you, Mike, for reminding me. If you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. It's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, the financial contributors that pay Mike, keep the, uh, the hosting paid up, and keep the podcast running, you can do so via Patreon at patreon.com slash FSCK. Sorry, I was eager to jump into the politics uh, because this is going to be a little bit different from the normal political talk. All right. This is only pertaining to elections in Durham, North Carolina. So if you live in Durham, please listen. If you know someone in Durham, please listen. If neither of those apply to you, you are more than welcome to skip ahead to the next section. I don't know the timestamp that it's going to be yet, uh, but we're only talking about Durham races here. And the reason why is that we have uh, elections, of course, as I mentioned, and they're being decided in the Democratic primary. I voted in a Democratic primary for the very first time ever in my life, Uh, Just last week, I have been a Republican since as long as I can remember uh, in the mock election we had in elementary school between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis. I voted for Bush 41. I've been a Republican ever since until the Trump era. And I now am unaffiliated, which gives me the chance to vote in primaries for either side. And last Thursday, I voted in a Democrat primary because, um, you know, we have two important races 
we have a race for school board as well, which I'm sure is important. But since I don't have school aged children anymore and, um, you know, I just, I don't have any involvement with the school, so it's not terribly important to me. I did not inform myself of those candidates as well as I should. There are two other races that are vitally important to the criminal justice system in Durham. One is the district attorney and the other is the Durham County Sheriff. And I wanted to share my votes and encourage you all to vote as I had. Now, I'm going to cover them in reverse. I'm going to talk about the sheriff first, and then we'll talk about the district attorney. And the reason why is that in any given race, there is when you cast a vote, there is some combination of it being for the candidate that you're voting for and slash or against the alternative. And those two votes were for different reasons in my case. When it comes to the sheriff, spoiler, I voted against the incumbent. When it came to the DA, I voted for the incumbent, so you know what's coming. But I was going to give you my reasons why. So for sheriff, we have Mike Andrews, who is the incumbent. I did not vote for him. I voted for his opponent, Clarence Burkhead. And it really was a vote against the incumbent. You know, Sheriff Andrews has had a tough term. He's had several people die in his jail. He's had a string of deputies that we've covered on this podcast, Breaking the Law. He's been too cozy with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a whole bunch of other stuff. That's not really the basis for my opposition. I know a lot of people are opposed to him because of that. That's not my reasoning. My reasoning is that he completely and totally screwed the pooch on the Confederate monument cases and has revealed himself as someone prone to abuse his power, frankly. So you might remember last summer, we had a situation in Charlottesville, Virginia that we covered where they had the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville with a bunch of uh, Nazis, white supremacists, Klansmen, and everyone else basically running amok in the town. The Saturday of that protest, a white supremacist deliberately ran his car into the crowd, killing Heather Heyer, one of the counter-protesters. Well, a couple days after that, some patriots here in Durham tore down the participation trophy to Confederate traitors that was erected on the courthouse grounds, a block over from my office. Not even a full block. There's two buildings in between my office and the participation trophy. So those were taken down. And the sheriff's reaction was that they didn't want to stop taking the monument down because the protests to the, up to that point had been peaceful and they didn't want things to get violent. They then charged the people who tore the statue down with felony rioting, even though one of the elements of rioting is that it's violent, and then had a press conference the next morning to reiterate that, in fact, no, it was not violent. So go back to episode 23. It's hashtag Defend Durham is the episode title. And we actually had a Law 140 on those charges where I explained there was no conceivable chance in hell that the district attorney's office could prove the charges against those individuals. The purpose of charging them with felonies was not to actually secure a conviction. It was to injure their future employment prospects by saddling them with the what we call collateral consequences of an arrest. Now, you'll be shocked, I'm sure, uh, that all of those felony charges were dismissed. Turns out the misdemeanor charges were dismissed as well. We talk with Roger a bit about that later. But then that wasn't done. So we've already charged people with crimes that there's no hope of actually proving. In addition to that, we discover at the trials that the sheriff's office staff as well as the Durham County security manager, uh, the evidence they put together was unusable. The judge, Fred Battaglia, actually held it as inadmissible at trial, 
because the camera footage was really of the backs of protesters' heads, and the videos that you could see people's faces were something that was privately obtained by a news entity that they later edited, which that's inadmissible as well because it's been modified. You can only use something that the police have gathered and has been in the chain of custody or something that is an unedited original from some other source. So after that protest where the statute comes down the following couple days later, I think it was a Friday. Don't quote me on that. Uh, there was rumors that the Ku Klux Klan was going to be in town for a protest uh, in response to the Confederate monument coming down. And a bunch of people gathered to counter-protest the planned uh, Klan rally. Well, you might remember in that same episode, episode 23, I basically do a TikTok of my day. I found out about both the Klan rally and the counter-protest while I was in court. And the source of that information was a judge who had been contacted by the sheriff's office. Well, when a bunch of people showed up downtown, the sheriff's office had already sealed off the street. Only a couple Klansmen actually showed, and we have pictures of them that we used in a trial later on that I'm going to cover in a second. But the sheriff decided to blame attorneys such as myself for spreading misinformation on social media, even though it came out weeks later that it was, in fact, the sheriff's office that had been the source of all that information. So if if you've missed these prior podcasts, go back and listen to them because it really is interesting stuff. Uh, Tyler Dukes and another reporter whose name I can't recall with WRAL pieced together a bunch of stuff from text messages and emails and everything else about what actually happened on that day. And you discover that the sheriff was the source of the information, but he blamed private attorneys like me anyway. Well, in addition to that, they arrested several people at the counter-protest who were possessing weapons, even though it is their lawful ability to carry those weapons under the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. uh, They were charged anyway. So if you go to episode 51... I explain in the Law 140 segment of that episode why those charges were thrown out. Essentially, they were charged under an unconstitutional statute. The presiding judge held that the statute violated both the First and Second Amendments to the United States Constitution, and as a result, those charges were dismissed. But we're not done yet. So you've got this overcharging with the Confederate monuments initially happening. You've got this lying about who's to blame for counter-protesters showing up downtown. You've got people being wrongfully arrested at a counter-protest pursuant to an unconstitutional statute. Well, then I come to find out that the sheriff's office has revoked the concealed carry permit of at least one of those people who was arrested, even though he didn't follow the state law for revoking a concealed carry permit. He just did it on his own because he thinks he's a dictator. So we're going to be filing a lawsuit against him in the coming weeks about that very issue. So if any of you are listening, spoiler alert, you're getting an inside tip on what's going to be news in a few days. So you, you tackle all of that stuff together. And what you have really is a classic abuse of power where the sheriff is charging people willy nilly with whatever he feels is appropriate as opposed to what is constitutionally appropriate uh, and then acting outside the bounds of the law whenever he sees fit. And that's just not what I think we need in a sheriff. I'm sure he's a nice guy. And, you know, frankly, I work with his staff every day at the courthouse. I love the staff of the Durham County Sheriff's Office, but I think we need new leadership at the top. So I have voted for Clarence Burkhead proudly, and I hope that he wins. On the district attorney side, it was not a vote against either of the opponents running against Roger. It was a vote in favor of Roger himself. 
Uh, I've worked with his staff for several years now. Roger's been in office for three and a half years at this point. And in particular, we talk about this some during the interview with him, he handled the Confederate cases fairly well. After the charges had been filed, I think it's a day or two after that, he had a press conference that basically says, look, we can't prove these felonies. He didn't say that verbatim, but it was it was obvious from his commentary. And they agreed that they were going to dismiss the felonies outright. They were still going to pursue misdemeanor charges for vandalism and destruction of property. Uh, but he essentially came out point blank and said, look, this is not appropriate. His office tried the cases. And when Judge Battaglia ruled that the evidence was inadmissible, he dismissed charges against two of the individuals and then found a third not guilty. Roger said, look, we've got eight cases where the evidence is going to be the exact same, it's a waste of taxpayer money for me to keep prosecuting these, even though the end result is going to be identical. So those cases were dismissed as well. And that's, frankly, how you should handle prosecutions of that nature. You prosecute what you can, and if you find yourself losing a string of cases from a protest, you dismiss the rest instead of wasting everyone's time and money. But in addition to that, in addition to how he handled the Confederate cases, he's provided stability to the Durham DA's office that had been in turmoil for a while. You know, Durham is where we had Mike Nifong as the district attorney. Uh, he was later disbarred for withholding evidence in the Duke Lacrosse case. Uh, his successor, Tracy Klein, was later removed from office and her license was suspended because she got into a, uh, a verbal war of words, if you will, with a superior court judge. Uh, so then Leon Stanback, who was a former judge, was brought in as an interim DA to kind of steady the ship. And Roger was elected uh, to replace him. So essentially, Roger was the fourth DA in about five years, give or take a few. Um, so he has provided needed stability to that position. And he's done a lot of reform, the type of stuff that I talk about in this podcast. You know, he's helped expand misdemeanor diversion, where first offenders, especially young ones, are shunted out of the normal system, where in certain cases they can avoid even having an arrest record if they do certain things. Uh, and he's reallocated prosecutorial resources to addressing violent felonies, which is something, frankly, that Durham needed to do. We spent so much time and money on penny ante traffic tickets and weed charges when, for a long time, we had the, longest, uh, the largest unprosecuted backlog of homicides in the state. So that type of stuff is what I value in a DA. You know, he's done a good job so far for the past three and a half years. I think he should continue in it. Now, he's got two people running against him. Uh, Daniel Myers, a defense attorney who I've known since back when I was a college dropout. I consider him a friend. If he wins, you know, I'll be happy for him. I'm not going to be heartbroken about it. Uh, but like I've told Daniel on Facebook when we argue, I think he's a little too forgiving to police sometimes. But he'd be okay. You know, I don't know Satana DeBerry, who is the other one running to Roger's left. Uh, but in her case, she's the one I mentioned in a prior episode that, that literally plagiarized Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner's website verbatim. And, and that bothered me for a couple of reasons. One, it's just dishonest. And I don't think you should have an elected district attorney responsible for law enforcement that does stuff like that. But if you're truly as passionate about Krasner's reforms as I am, for example, you don't need to do a copy and paste. You can put it in your own words and it's okay. Uh, but then in addition to that, I don't think she knows what's going on in the DA's office. You know, for example, I saw her at a forum where she was talking about using Krasner's approach to uh, larcenies, you know, shoplifting and that sort of thing. And the approach that Philly is using is actually more 
restrictive, more punishing, punishing, if you will, uh, toward the defendants than what we're already doing in Durham. You know, in Durham, if you're a first offender and you get charged with shoplifting, the DA's office will talk to the merchant and see what the merchant is okay with. And a lot of times they'll dismiss the case as long as restitution is paid and community service is done. You know, DeBerry's approach is, hey, Philly, in Philly, everyone's getting supervised probation. Well, that's that's worse than what you would get in most cases here. And if you were serious about becoming a district attorney, you should kind of know what goes on in the office to know that would be the end result. Uh, so that's the rationale for my choices. I dislike the incumbent sheriff. I think he abuses his power. I like the incumbent district attorney. Uh, so I've voted for Clarence Burkhead for sheriff and Roger Eccles for district attorney. And I hope all of you will do the same. And if you know people in Durham, I hope you will encourage them to do the same. I think there'll be good choices for future leadership. All right, let's get into some of the criminal justice news. I've got quite a bit, but this is also an abbreviated list because I know the last portion with Rogers about 30 ish plus minutes. So I had to cut some stuff out to make sure we can keep a decent time in general research news. The library of Congress has provided a new database of every single Supreme court decision ever. And they're available as OCR optical character recognition, uh, OCR PDF files uh, from a story that they are press release. Rather they've released it says, quote, more than 225 years of Supreme Court decisions acquired by the Library of Congress are now publicly available online, free to access in a page image format for the first time. The library has made available more than 35,000 cases that were published in the printed bound editions of United States reports. The USRs is a series of bound case reporters that are the official reports of decisions for the United States Supreme Court dating back to the court's very first decision in 1791 and to earlier courts that preceded the Supreme Court during the colonial era. The library's new online collection offers access to individual cases published in volumes 1 through 542 of the bound edition. This collection of Supreme Court cases is fully searchable. Filters allow users to narrow their searches by date, name of the justice authoring the opinion, subject, and by the main legal concepts at issue in each case. PDF versions of individual cases can be viewed and downloaded. Now, I've toyed around with this a bit. It's not perfect. Uh, when they say it's fully searchable, not quite. So, for example, if you uh, searched Filburn for the case Wickard v. Filburn, it will pull up that case. And the PDF, when you download it, can be searched for specific words, uh, but it wouldn't pull up the cases that cite Filburn. So it's a work in progress, but still, it's huge progress because prior to the U.S. reports, the early Supreme Court decisions were in separate, we call them reporters, they're bound volumes of case decisions, and whoever was taking down that information, who are really court reporters in reality, uh, they would be the ones that the the uh, volume would be named after. So you'll see Cranch, for example. Uh, Cranch was one of the reporters. So by converting everything over to these USRs, uh, it was super efficient, but a lot of times you got to pay money to get them. So folks are going to uh, places like justia.com where they've taken USR stuff and scanned it in and converted it to text. So you get access to some of it. This finally has everything. So it's awesome progress. Uh, in state-by-state state news in California, out of Barstow, the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. They have summarily executed Deontay Yarber in a Walmart parking lot, firing more than 30 shots into his car, where not only was he unarmed, but there were three other passengers in the car with him. 
Uh, from the story, it says, quote, police in a small inland California city are facing criticism after they opened fire on a car in a Walmart parking lot this month, killing the unarmed black man who had been driving and injuring one of his three passengers. Video of the shooting in Barstow, recorded by a pedestrian and later posted online by racial justice activist Sean King, appears to show officers with the Barstow Police Department firing more than a dozen rounds. A lawyer for the family of the man who was killed, Deontay Yarber, 26, estimated that the police had fired about 30 shots. The video posted by Mr. King shows the shooting in real time for a total of about seven seconds. It was not clear what happened before the recording started or after it ended. In the video, rapid gunfire can be heard as a black car appears to drive slowly in reverse. Mr. Yarber, who had been struck repeatedly, was pronounced dead at the scene. Another passenger, a woman identified as Mariana Tafoya, was also struck by gunfire and was airlifted to a hospital. The two other passengers, both men, exited the car during the episode, with one of them sustaining what the authorities called minor injuries. Look, you don't fire into an occupied car unless you know who is in the vehicle. You don't risk killing passengers when only the driver has supposedly committed a crime. And you certainly don't fire 30 shots when one or two potentially could suffice. You know, this whole hail of bullets bullshit is ridiculous. Uh, so that's out of Barstow in Merced, California. You can add asking for a refund to the list of crimes that can get you beat if you happen to be a black man in America. From the story, it says, quote, Merced police said Wednesday they have launched an internal affairs investigation into an incident that left a Merced man with a bleeding, swollen face and other injuries. Captain Bimley West said the department is looking into the officers involved in the arrest of 39-year-old William Colbert at the AMPM market on G Street and Olive Avenue. Colbert's arrest, it could be Colbert, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Colbert's arrest photo shows a right eye swollen shut and blood smeared across his face. And it looks bad. You know, I don't know if y'all have remembered, I'm trying to think of the movie that has Will Smith, uh, Ava Mendez, um... Hitch. Yes, that's correct. It's Hitch. You remember there's the scene where he has like an allergic reaction and his face gets totally, uh, Will Smith's face gets totally ridiculous. So he rushes to the, the drugstore to drink Benadryl. For a while there, I thought that it was not a real photo of Colbert's booking photo. Like I thought it was some kind of, you know, image that they had taken offline uh, and decided to put for that particular story. But it's him. Like he's pretty thoroughly beaten. Um, from the story continues, quote, West declined to release the names of the officers being investigated and said he could not elaborate on the circumstances or claims Colbert made regarding the arrest. In addition, the Merced Sun Star's request for surveillance footage of the altercation was denied by the Merced County Council Office, citing an ongoing investigation. Colbert went into the convenience store around 1030 p.m. to buy an iced tea, he said. He just left Mercy Medical Center after having an allergic reaction to medication. A Merced resident, Colbert said he had a disagreement over the payment and demanded the clerk put the money back on his card. After arguing for several minutes, the clerk called police and said Colbert was armed. No weapon was found. Uh, so basically, the story goes on. It's lengthy. Officers took the guy to the hospital because when they were arresting him the first time, they basically broke the guy's thumb. And then once that was done, the hospital released him to the deputies again for them to take him to the jail. And he's not wearing handcuffs at the jail because he's wearing a splint on his thumb. Well, at the jail, there's a second fight where the police keep pushing him. And one time he steps out of the way and the officer who pushed him falls. 
So Colbert gets on the ground because he knows he's about to get his ass whooped. And that's exactly what happened. The police are punching and kicking him to the point where he's thoroughly fucked up. Uh, and at some point during the altercation, at least one of the officers decided to use the ridges and the handcuff uh, to basically rake the back of the guy's arm. Uh, so basically, after he was turned over to the jail, the jail staff took him back to the hospital to be treated for having the shit beat out of him. So we'll give you that story in the show notes. It's pretty bad. Uh, in Broward County, Florida, a white judge went on an extended rant when an elderly black woman in a wheelchair complained that she couldn't get her medications in jail. Uh, and the woman's now dead. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a Broward County circuit judge delivered a blistering, arm-waving, face-palming, tongue-lashing to a frail, out-of-breath woman pushed into court in a wheelchair who was facing misdemeanor charges following a family feud. The courtroom rant last Sunday was so over the top that Broward's elected public defender, Howard Finkelstein, demanded that Judge Marilee Ehrlich be banned from the criminal courthouse. Judge Ehrlich has resigned, allegedly, I'm putting allegedly in air quotes, uh, although it is unclear when that resignation was provided and when it becomes effective. Sandra Faye Twiggs, who is the woman who had been brought into court, uh, suffered from asthma and COPD, that's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, she ended up under arrest after she squabbled with her 19-year-old daughter. Twiggs had never been in trouble before when the police department charged her on April 13th with, with scratching her daughter's face during the domestic dispute. Two days later, Twiggs was wheeled into Ehrlich's courtroom, coughing and gasping for breath. In a video of the April 15th encounter, Ehrlich asks Twiggs whether she and her daughter, the alleged victim, live in the same house. Twiggs tried to answer the question, which required more than a yes or no because the 19-year-old doesn't live with her full-time. Uh, but mid-sentence, Ehrlich snaps at her, Excuse me, don't say anything beyond what I'm asking you. Clearly exasperated, Ehrlich asks Twiggs' lawyer to make Twiggs stop talking. As Twiggs coughs and holds her head, she tries to tell the judge that she needs medical treatment for her pulmonary problems. The judge erupts, ma'am, I am not here to talk to you about your breathing treatments. This is all on video, by the way, like you can see this at the link. It's worse than my reenactment. Uh, three days later, the defendant died. Anna Twiggs, the woman's sister, found her in bed Wednesday morning, the day after she was released from jail. The indignity of that entire interaction is stunning. Not in a good way. You have a judge elected to treat everyone impartially who just fucking explodes on this woman who's clearly ill and is a first offender. She's never done anything wrong before. Can you imagine being an old person with medical problems being taken to the court for the very first time? You would think a judge would have a little bit more patience. And in the process, the jail denying her her medications, I wouldn't be surprised if the stress of that court appearance played into it. She's now dead. You get arrested for misdemeanor assault because you allegedly scratch a daughter that you're fighting with and you get the death penalty for it. It's fucking insane. Uh, out of Largo, Florida, this is a... Ugh. Basically, police raided a funeral home so they could use a dead guy's fingers to unsuccessfully try to unlock his iPhone. Yes, that's actually what happened. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Most people agree that what the Largo detectives did at the funeral home was legal. What they diverge on is whether it was appropriate. Subquote, I just felt so disrespected and violated, said Victoria Armstrong, whose fiancé, Linus Phillip, was shot and killed by a Largo police officer last month. Armstrong happened to be at Sylvan Abbey Funeral Home in Clearwater. The day two detectives showed up with Phillip's phone. They were taken to Phillip's corpse. 
Then they tried to unlock the phone by holding the dead body's hands up to the phone's fingerprint sensor. Spoiler alert, if you watch any bit of CSI type stuff, you know that's not going to work because after you die, your body starts getting dehydrated. It deforms your fingerprints. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, Lieutenant Randall Cheney said it was an unsuccessful attempt to access and preserve data on the phone to aid in the investigation into Philip's death. Now, here's the part about that that makes no sense because he was killed at a gas station last month after he had been pulled over for a dark window tent and the officer has not been charged. What other fucking information are you going to have on a cell phone that is at all relevant to your officers pulling him over for window tent and then shooting him dead? We leave that alone. Uh, One of the people in the story is quoted saying, quote, while the deceased person doesn't have a vested interest in the remains of their body, the family sure does. So it really doesn't pass the smell test, said Charles Rose, professor and director of the Center for Excellence in Advocacy at Stetson University College of Law. He continues, quote, there's a ghoulish component to it that's troubling to most people. That's a fucking understatement of the year. So Largo police protecting and serving the fuck out of your corpse Uh, out of Georgia in Noonan. So we had a Nazi rally this past weekend and police decided that uh, because not enough Nazis showed up and they were out in all kinds of military gear, the best thing for them to do would be to harass and arrest counter protesters, including several pictures where they're just pointing guns at them, even though these folks have no weapons. Uh, it's mostly a Twitter story as far as most of the pictures and videos and stuff, but we're going to give you a link to a slate piece that compiles some of those tweets. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, there was lots of anticipation in the small Georgia town of Noonan for what had been billed as the biggest gathering of neo-Nazis since Charlottesville last year that ended with one person dead. In the end, it was much ado about nothing, as only dozens of people showed up to celebrate Adolf Hitler's birthday, and they were far outnumbered by hundreds of counter-protesters. But the town got ready for the event with a massive militarized police presence, like they had tanks and everything. It's fucking insane. Uh, And it seems the approximately 700 law enforcement officers who were on hand were eager to do something, so they quickly turned attention to the people who had gathered to protest Nazis. At least 10 were arrested. Photos and video quickly spread on social media, showing a very aggressive law enforcement force that targeted counter-protesters. Christopher Mathias of the Huffington Post wrote on Twitter that he had witnessed the most over-aggressive policing I've ever seen as police tackled and arrested protesters for wearing masks. Note, interesting part is the anti-mask statute was passed to target the Ku Klux Klan, and now they're using it against anti-Klan protesters. Uh, The story continues, one shocking photo shows a cop pointing guns directly at the unarmed counter-protesters. It's more than one, but the one is like really bad to the point where I had to share it on Facebook as an example of absolutely horrible trigger control, muzzle control, all of it. Just, I I don't know who the fuck trains these people down in Georgia. Uh, In Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck that is Louisiana, out of Baton Rouge, A lawsuit filed by a journalism student has led to changes in the rules about interviewing inmates. From that story, it says, quote, the Department of Corrections has agreed to ease restrictions on prisoner interviews to settle a lawsuit filed by a student journalist and the American Civil Liberties Union of Louisiana. Christopher Lowry, a former project coordinator for the Wrongful Conviction Project at LSU's Manship School of Mass Communication, filed the suit last year after department officials denied his request to interview Angola inmate Daryl Hines. 
The complaint, filed in September in U.S. District Court in Baton Rouge, said that Lowry, a graduate student investigating alleged wrongful convictions, and Hines, an Angola inmate convicted in 1994 for shoot a shooting in Plaquemine, I guess it's Plaquemine, P-L-A-Q-U-E-M-I-N-E, Louisiana, uh, had been trying to arrange an in-person interview since December of 2015. Hines asserts that he was wrongly convicted. The Department of Corrections repeatedly rejected the request to arrange the interview because department regulations had previously prohibited media interviews that discussed the details of an incarcerated individual's alleged crimes, citing its consideration for the feelings of victims and their family members. Think of how fucking Kafka-esque that is. If you end up being wrongly convicted, you're not allowed to talk about your wrongful conviction because it would offend the feelings of victims who aren't your victims and family members of those victims who aren't your victims. It's, it's ridiculous. So the settlement, basically the department has agreed it's going to delete that particular regulation. Uh, out of Maryland, we call it the fourth rule of Fisk. The Wire was a documentary. Uh, government officials are trying an experiment in crime control. That experiment, and I'm, I'm putting experiment in direct quotes. These aren't air quotes. It is actually labeled in experiment. Uh, providing government services to poor people. Holy shit, knock me over with a feather. Uh, there's a story in the Baltimore Sun, and it says, quote, in Baltimore's most crime-ridden zones, city officials are conducting an experiment in government. They started last year by targeting four small, deeply troubled areas to be flooded with more police patrols and city services. They called them transformation zones at first, then rebranded them as violence reduction zones, They've since added three more, bringing the total to seven. Each zone gets several dedicated police officers. We used to call that neighborhood policing, sidebar, uh, and an extra focus across city government for ramped up services. The mayor has put $1.6 million in the city's budget for rapid response crews from the Department of Public Works to clean up these areas. Three more housing inspectors to enforce code violations such as peeling lead paint and extended hours at local recreation centers. The idea is simple. If it can be rightly said that these areas were for far too long over-policed and underserved, and if this punitive style of government did not produce lasting crime declines, then officials should try the opposite. The zone should be drowning in services from job training to street cleaning. It's fascinating to me, this idea that providing government services to the poor is an experiment. It blows my fucking mind. Uh, So that's out of Maryland in Michigan, in Detroit. New footage has been released and compiled by the Detroit Free Press into the extrajudicial summary execution of 15-year-old Damon Grimes. He was the unarmed black kid driving an SUV when he was tased by killer cop Mark Besner with the Michigan State Police. And basically, it provides a pretty candid glimpse into how fucked policing is in America. So go back to episode 25 when we covered Grimes' death. And then episode 46, we talked about Besner being charged with murder, but from the very lengthy Detroit Free Press piece that we're going to link to you in the show notes, it says, quote, as 15-year-old Damon Grimes lay dying in the middle of the street last August, Michigan State Police Trooper Mark Besner crouched over his body. Grimes had been driving about 35 miles an hour on an ATV when Besner, who was a passenger in a moving patrol car, fired his stun gun at the teen during a chase on Detroit's east side. Grimes slammed into the back of a parked truck and flew off of his ATV. 
The impact of the crash ripped gashes into his forehead, both cheeks and upper lip, and dislocated his skull. Doctors pronounced him dead on arrival at St. John's Hospital. To better understand what happened that evening, the Free Press used the Michigan Freedom of Information Act to request extensive records related to the crash. It received almost 11 hours of footage captured by cameras mounted in patrol cars on nearby businesses and worn by Detroit police officers who also responded to the incident. The Free Press also obtained almost 16 hours of audio recordings from police radios and phones, as well as more than 600 pages of documents and more than 500 photos. Michigan State Police took six months to provide those records, which were heavily redacted. Uh, For example, State Police withheld all footage captured from the camera in Besner's squad car and also blurred the video of Grimes. Still, the video and audio files that were turned over show elements of the chase and its aftermath from dozens of angles and perspectives with candid, real-time comments provided by police officers seeing the events unfold in front of them. Here are some of the highlights. Uh, So you have security camera video showing the final seconds of the chase. Turns out the blue lights on the patrol car didn't start flashing until 24 seconds after the crash. They chased after this 15-year-old kid without their lights on. How the fuck do you know they're police? In addition, Besner acknowledges using the stun gun on Grimes as he rides away on the ATV. And you get unfiltered talk from police officers, including one who says, quote, don't run from the state police, you'll get fucked up. Gotta love Detroit, Michigan. Out of New Jersey and Camden County. Beating the shit out of an arrestee is justified if it looks like your hands are moving. From the story in NJ.com, it says, the quote, The police officer caught on camera punching a man 12 times in the head after stopping him on the street February 22nd will not be charged with a crime, authorities said. Camden County Police Chief J. Scott Thompson has called the video, subquote, disturbing. But the county prosecutor's office announced Thursday that a review of video evidence showed Edward Minguela was pulling his arms away from Officer Nicholas Romantino as he tried to arrest him, and thus the blows were justified. The decision doesn't just exonerate Romantino, it also means that the prosecutor's office will move forward on charges against Minguela of resisting arrest and obstruction, which had been stayed during the investigation. Now here's the crazy shit. Minguela was leaving Fairview Liquors on Collings Road on the night of February 22nd when police ran up to him with their guns drawn. Authorities said they were responding to a call about a man with a gun, and Minguela matched the description. You will be shocked, I am sure, to find that no gun was found in Minguela's possession, but he was arrested on charges of resisting arrest and obstruction. So they had no legitimate basis to arrest him in the first place, but by resisting the unlawful arrest, they had legitimate charges against him that are now being prosecuted. It's fucking insane. Uh, Out of New York, in New York City, we do have some good news. Don't let it be said that I do not report good news. Uh, An area of East New York City that had been called the Killing Fields because of how many people were killed there has had zero murders in 2018, going all the way back to mid-December. From the story in the New York Times, it says, quote, In East New York, Brooklyn, a police observation tower still hovers over the intersection where a 16-year-old boy was gunned down on his way home from playing basketball last November. It was one of a string of killings toward the end of the year in the 75th Precinct, an area long scarred by violence that gained notoriety in the 1990s as New York City's killing fields and regularly logged more than 100 murders a year. Even as crime has plummeted across the city, the precinct has remained among the deadliest. Last year, the police tallied 11 murders, the second most in the city. 
But so far this year, something remarkable has happened in the 75th precinct, or more precisely, not happened. No one has been killed. The 129-day stretch without a murder, dating back to December 12th, is the longest in the precinct since the police department began keeping modern records in 1993. Now, y'all remember when stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional and it was ended and the police unions in New York City were shrieking about this tremendous explosion of crime that was going to happen when they could no longer randomly stop uh, Americans and harass them? That explosion of crime hasn't happened because it was bullshit. Uh, So that's out of New York. In North Carolina, out of Alamance County, charges have been dismissed against a man who joked on Facebook about blowing up the county courthouse. We've talked about this case before in episode 32 from the story in the Burlington Times News. It says, quote, A misdemeanor charge of attempted incitement to riot against Thomas Lee Jeffries Jr. was dismissed Monday, not because of a free speech challenge, but because prosecutors couldn't show he made the threatening post on Facebook. Sheriff Terry John... I shouldn't laugh. This isn't funny. Uh, Sheriff Terry Johnson and District Attorney Pat Nadolski announced the charge against Jeffries at a press conference last August, the week after a Confederate monument in Durham was torn down in a spontaneous protest after the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. According to warrants, on August 14th or 15th, Jeffries wrote, quote, Let's just blow the whole courthouse up in a Facebook post in response to another post saying let's pull down the Confederate statue. The post about blowing up the courthouse was followed by three laughing slash crying emojis, basically smiley faces often used in social media and text messages. Now, look, this was inevitably going to get thrown out on appeal on a First Amendment challenge if for some reason he had been convicted. But you read the story and what you find out is the police didn't even bother to subpoena Facebook to turn over the IP address so they couldn't prove that the guy they charged was the guy who actually made the comments. Uh, so that's that's Alamance County for you. Out of Ohio and Cincinnati, police responding to a student's 911 call as he was being crushed to death in a minivan never bothered to get out of their car to investigate as he laid dying steps away from them. This is a this is such a disturbing fucking story. Um, I'm not even going to give you the quotes because it's just disturbing. The gist of it is this: the kid was in a minivan trying to reach his tennis equipment in the rear, you know, and some of the minivans have those fold down bucket seats. Well, as he was reaching for the equipment, the seat folded down on top of him and he couldn't get out. So he used an app on his phone to call 911. He couldn't hear the operator, but he's screaming for help saying he's going to be crushed in here. They used geolocation to get to the parking lot. But then the police, based on body cam footage, never even bother to get out of the car to investigate. They drive to the parking lot, say they don't see anyone, and then start talking with the 911 operator that it's a prank. So the kid suffocated to death. His dad found him dead a few hours later in the back. Uh, So that's out of Ohio. In Oklahoma, out of Oklahoma City, we've got the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Uh, The state doesn't know how many untested rape kits there are. You might have noticed we have a similar problem in North Carolina. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Last April, Governor Mary Fallon signed an executive order creating a task force to determine the number of untested rape kits statewide and make recommendations. Fallon directed law enforcement agencies to report the number of untested kits to the state attorney general's office by December 2017 but later set a new deadline of February 15 after many agencies missed the initial date. 
two weeks ago, which note for those keeping track at home is April. So you had a December date people missed, a February date people evidently still missed. Two weeks ago, with nearly 150 law enforcement agencies still not reporting, the Sexual Assault Forensic Evidence Task Force decided to ask the Oklahoma Sheriff's Association and the Oklahoma Association of Chiefs of Police to follow up with non-responsive agencies. Uh, Staff at the Attorney General's Office are still working to tabulate the responses that have come in. So far, they've tallied at least 7,172 untested rape kits reported by 290 law enforcement agencies across the state. It's crazy to me that we collect all this evidence and never even bother to find out what it's for. You know, we had that story, I think it was in Michigan, where they decided to test a bunch of untested rape kits and they identified several serial rapists. You should probably do that in Oklahoma as well. Uh, out of Pennsylvania, Camp Hill, a, a judge who was going to marry a couple uh, decided instead to call ICE to have the groom deported. And surprise, he's here in the country legally. From the story, it says, quote, Alexander Parker and Krisha Schmick didn't want much fanfare on their wedding day. The small Camp Hill courthouse in Pennsylvania would do. The high school sweethearts were giddy as they walked into the building for their appointment, eager to exchange vows. The couple's excitement was cut short, however, when the judge that had been meant to marry them called Immigrations and Customs Enforcement agents on the pair instead, refusing to believe Alexander, 22, who looks a little bit darker than you or I, was living in the United States legally. But I'm sure race had nothing to do with her motivations. Krisha uh, said ICE officers, subquote, scared the hell out of him when they showed up, threatening to take Alexander to an immigration detention center if they couldn't confirm he was in the U.S. legally. Alexander said officers fingerprinted him without asking for his permission and warned him that instead of celebrating his wedding, he could end up spending the evening at an immigration detention center in Harrisburg. Eventually, surprise, ICE officers were able to verify that Alexander was, in fact, in the country legally and, subquote, apologized for having to come out to do this. You didn't have to come out to do this. The judge decided to be an asshole, and you guys decided to show up and rattle the sabers without bothering to check to see if someone's in the fucking country legally. It's ridiculous. That's out of Pennsylvania and Tennessee. Shelby County, first rule of Fisk isn't just for police. Turns out that it's for teachers, too. They will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Uh, a teacher gave a seven-year-old black kid a concussion when he tried to drag the kid off the bus by his feet, and he was caught on video. From the story, it says, quote, an elementary school employee is being investigated by school officials in Tennessee after a video showed him roughly removing a seven-year-old black boy from a school bus. WREG reports the Robert R. Church Elementary School employee has been removed from his position while the investigation is ongoing. Fox 13 identified the man as a teacher, but statements from the school refer to him only as an employee. The incident allegedly took place on April 12th, but the boy's mother, Kimberly Harden, said she didn't know about the video until the more than 24 hours later when a fellow parent showed it to her. Subquote, they said he had bruises and a concussion. Because of the way he was dragged, he hit his head, said Harden. I feel bad. I didn't believe my child. Video of the incident shows the boy being dragged off the bus by his foot, mostly upside down, all while thrashing and screaming for his mother. It's out of Tennessee and Texas. We got one, two, three Texas stories uh, in Bearspilled Bexar County. Sheriff's Deputy Jose Payez has been indicted for assault. And here's the kicker. He is the fourth deputy indicted in just eight days in this county. 
From the story, it says, quote, A Bear County Sheriff's Office deputy turned himself in Thursday after he was indicted on an assault charge, according to a news release from the agency. Jose Payez was charged by a grand jury on one count of assault for an off-duty incident that occurred in February 2017. He's the fourth deputy to be indicted in eight days. On Tuesday, 15-year veteran Leonard Lopez turned himself in for a sexual assault charge related to an alleged 2016 incident. And on April 11th, deputies Michael Gomez and Anthony Hernandez were indicted on charges of official oppression after authorities said they assaulted an inmate last August. Think about that. You got a guy, you got two guys August of 2017 on the job without being charged, another in February 2017 on the job without being charged, and one guy who raped someone two years ago who's just now being charged. All four have been placed on administrative leave. Good luck to those of you that live in Bear County, especially if you have a little bit more melanin than I do. Uh, out of Dallas, this is a non-police story, uh, but a Republican-turned-Democrat-turned-Republican who served on the State Board of Education has been spending his days tweeting black students accepted to college to ask them if they got in on merit or on quota. Uh, so if you get bored, go to my Twitter feed from Sunday night, and I've got screenshots of several of these. But the racist asshole's name is George Clayton. He apparently represented District 12 of the Texas State Board of Education. And he just seems to be going around finding tweets of happy kids accepted to college to be a dick. Uh, for example, there's a tweet from a Cody Babineau who says, quote, Hi, I'm Cody Babineau, and I just got into Princeton. Clayton responds, Were you admitted on merit or on quota regulations? If on merit, great job, congratulations. If on a quota number, work hard, make the best of it, and thank the merit applicant you replaced. Uh, Drake Johnson says, It's official. I'm Harvard bound. Clayton responds, Congrats. Were you admitted on merit or on quota? Uh, a girl named Chelsea has a tweet that says 17 years in the making, where she has pics from four different acceptance letters, including Duke. Clayton responds, was your admittance merit or quota based? Uh, another one, Nelly says, all my hard work is paid off. I still can't believe I got accepted to my dream school. Hashtag Brown 2022. And Clayton responds, was you admission merit or quota based, or do you know th difference? So yes, he's got two separate grammatical errors in that tweet. Uh, but Julie Lawman on Twitter uh, responded to this saying, Racists love to blame poor life choices for black poverty and crime, yet impugn black achievement as unearned. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's absolutely right. When we talk about systemic racism, this is that. No tweets to white girls, even though white girls are the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action. And quotas were held unconstitutional 40 years ago in the case of Regents of the University of California versus Baki back in 1978. Quotas don't exist. They're not allowed to exist. But it also raises the question, if you wanted to create a political party that explicitly served white supremacists, that was your focus, what would you do differently other than what's already being done in Donald Trump's Republican Party? Let me know if you have an answer to that question, because I can't really think of anything. Uh, so that's out of, was that Dallas? Is that guy in Dallas? Yeah, it's Dallas, out of Houston. The sheriff's deputy who killed an unarmed black man in the middle of the street in broad daylight has been fired. We talked about this case in Fisk 57 a couple weeks ago, uh, where the guy had his literally had his pants around his ankles, nothing at all in his hands, and the officer decided to shoot him dead anyway. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a deputy who shot and killed an unarmed man last month following a confrontation in North Houston was fired late Friday by Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez. 
The deputy, Cameron Brewer, was terminated for failing to follow the department's use of force policy when he shot and killed Danny Ray Thomas on March 22nd. The officer was equipped with a taser, but did not choose to use the electronic stunning device to try and subdue Thomas. The fatal shot, fired about 20 seconds after Brewer ordered Thomas to get on the ground, can be heard on a recording of the confrontation. This is going to surprise you, I'm sure. Uh, The officer's dashboard camera did not capture video of the shooting, and his recently issued body camera was charging in the car when the shooting happened. So basically, had there not been bystander footage, no one ever would have known what happened. Uh, The termination came after a thorough internal affairs investigation, the sheriff said, and found Brewer did not adhere to the use of force policy. The policy calls for the use of force to be avoided if reasonably possible. The Harris County Deputies Organization criticized the sheriff's actions. Of course they fucking did, because they like being able to summarily execute unarmed black men for sport and get away with it. So kudos to the sheriff. So folks, that's it for the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery for this particular episode. I've got roughly another dozen stories or so uh, that we had to cut to save time, but I wanted to make sure we had enough room for the interview with Roger Eccles. Now, I've got to preface this. The audio kind of sucks, and that is my fault because I've still not mastered the use of this microphone for interviewing purposes. Uh, I turned the gain up, and it picks up Roger fine at certain points, but there are other spots where it's really quiet, and I don't think Mike's going to be able to fix it. And then there are other spots where I'm entirely too loud, even though I'm all the way across the table. Uh, So be in a quiet room, most likely, so you can pick up what Roger says, and then just kind of like plug your ears when I'm talking if it comes across as too loud. Uh, We're going to try and tweak it as best we can, but I don't know there's much we can do. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into my interview with the elected district attorney of Durham, North Carolina, Roger Eccles. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking with us through the break. And I am joined this time with a very special guest. We have Roger Eccles, who is the elected district attorney for Judicial District 14, which is Durham County, where I happen to practice. Roger, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, we're in the middle of a very unusual electoral season here in Durham because a lot of times with district attorneys, you find one DA in office pretty much forever. Uh, well, this will, Roger, you're, the, I think, the fourth in eight years, give or take. Is that yes. right? Well, maybe more through the through the appointments. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> so we've had a lot of DAs in Durham, I'll put it that way. And you actually have two competitors this time. We're going to talk to all that in, in a minute. But before we get into those details, why did you become a lawyer and what made you get into, out of all the other fields of law, criminal justice in particular? Well, I went to law school just because of the number of things in a number of areas that you could go into um, in the law. The, the, I use opportunities uh, loosely, but it was many, many areas that, you know, that you could, you, you could work in. You're not just, you know, with the law degree or you're going to law school, you're not just confined to litigation, not just confined to criminal. Um, it's all kinds of things. So um, I went to law school, not with the idea that I, I want to do this or this. Um, I just knew that it would provide um, a lot of options uh, to decide what I wanted to do. Shortly after getting to law school, I decided that I like criminal law just because I, I like the the, I like the, I was interested in the discipline more than the other areas. Um, my background wasn't necessarily such. I had a degree in economics, and so um, for the most part, I was just interested in criminal procedure, the fourth and 
Fifth, Sixth Amendment, that that type stuff. And you think about those things, I think, when you get interested that way, as almost as if you're the defendant. <laughs> um, um, of course, you're you're innocent um, um, when you think of yourself that way. And so that's that's how I thought of my that's how I thought of it and my interest in it. But um, late in my law school career, I had some contact with the district attorney's office, and I thought there are things that you can do. Um, as a prosecutor that you can't do as a defense attorney and vice versa. Um, and so I saw the value in both and I did not have a, uh, a preference of either when I, when I graduated. Criminal law wasn't the only thing that I was interested in, but I, was, I think it was at the top of my list when I graduated. So um, just mainly based off interest in the, the subject um, is, is what got me into uh, criminal law. So in my case, I had, I had contact with the DA's office my three year as well, and I, I had the opposite approach. I decided I hated prosecution because y'all, have, y'all deal with so much, and you don't have the luxury of, you know, when, I, when someone comes in and wants to hire me, if I don't like them, I could just say, go find another lawyer. Right. Y'all have to take every case that comes on your doorstep, right. essentially. And the, and the tongue lashing that might go with it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about that later on. So what made you decide after your career as a prosecutor, that you wanted to, to deal with the politics and become the elected DA? Um, I don't think anything has made me decide that I wanted to deal with it. But, uh, um, you know, when I became a prosecutor, um, you know, maybe law school graduates are different uh, these days than they, than they were, uh, you know, 20 years ago. But I just wanted to uh, learn how to do the job. You know, I wanted to survive a, a year and, and, you know, see if I liked it, you know, survive a few more. And, 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 you know, at some point along the line, I thought, you know, well, maybe I will try to be a career prosecutor. And in being a career prosecutor, it really occurs to me that nobody who aspires to be a career prosecutor necessarily aspires to be an elected DA because you, you do different things as a DA. More, more importantly, you don't do the things as an elected DA nearly as much as uh, as the type of things you did as as a career prosecutor, so you're not in the courtroom as much, and that right, sort of thing. Right, and so I never thought, you know, five years in, ten years in, necessarily that. Oh, okay, I, I you know, I want to be DA, and so it's just the way things worked out. That um, and maybe if they wouldn't have worked out, pointing me in the direction so clearly, I, I'm probably reluctant enough to want to deal with the 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 politics or the the upgraded or upper level politics that you have to deal with as a running for office and just being an ADA, um, or, you know, or else I just, I may not have done it in other words. But, um, I think even if you don't want to be an elected DA, if you have done it long enough, you see the value in, you know, I can set policy, um, or I may like it if the policy was, was this, even if I don't want to be the one, uh, to do it. So, you know, I decided that look, you know, maybe it's meant to be, and I and I think I can do some 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 good things, and I think you know maybe an office would benefit from me, from from me being um, the DA. So I, I I decided to deal with the politics <laughs> more so than deciding that I wanted to, right, <laughs> to right. deal with, to deal with the the politics of it. Well, full disclosure to everyone listening, I think out of my six years as a defense attorney, I've only had to work with you like one time. Mm -hmm. I had had one client who did 10 years federal time and had a 
state case for the same offense and I should dismiss it. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> so most of my work has been dealing with your staff. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, how would you describe your philosophy as a prosecutor? You know, the policies you choose to put in place. And then what do you look for in the people that you hire to work under you? Because they're the ones that really put that philosophy into practice. To me, the core function of any DA's office is you you do make decisions that keep people safe. Um, But how do you make those decisions is really really the question. Um, Because whether it's um, DA in Durham County or Orange County or DA in, um, you name it, a place that you may think is totally different, we could all say some the same things, and you would know well, these officers are totally different. But, <laughs> um, but um, you know, I've always been about a, uh, a thoughtful approach in, in achieving some balance and recognizing that you, you need to balance um, rights of the victims, uh, safety to the community, and, and, and look a little bit further down the road as to the the effects on the community and effects on the the people that you actually prosecute. It doesn't take a lot of thought, in my opinion, to realize that the vast, vast, vast majority of the people that we prosecute are either either coming out of the courtroom to go back into the um, to the community or coming out of incarceration after after a short period of incarceration to to go back in the community. I don't even know what the percentage is, but it's it's only probably a fraction, a small fraction of the percent of the people we prosecute that are that go to prison for an extremely long time. Mm-hmm. And so, when you're not compromising safety, what decisions can you make that bear on future recidivism or or the ability of that offender to be successful after that after that particular contact? So, when people talk about diversionary. Um, programs, but you know, to be honest with you, we don't control diversionary programs as much as other decision makers control it before they get for, before they get to us. I mean, if 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 a school system diverts the juvenile, we typically don't know about it. If law enforcement divert, we 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 pretty much don't know about it. Obviously, a lot of there's been a lot of talk in in this community and in this election about the misdemeanor diversion program, which is the collaboration of uh, court officials and court offices um, collaborating with law enforcement and, and, and other agencies and other people in the community. But it's, um, you know, no one's asking me if they can, if they can divert something, they right. just, they, you know, otherwise they just, you know, they just do it. But um, we do get an opportunity to defer, which while it doesn't keep, um, people from being charged, it keeps people from being convicted, or gives a chance to keep people from being convicted. So, helps mitigate some of the collateral consequences of the help, prosecution. Helps, right, it helps mitigate a lot of it. Um, you know, maybe not as much as not getting charged at all, um, but hopefully it mitigates the biggest thing, and that's a and that's a conviction. Uh, so, many times um, with a deferral, you, you you get the punishment. Right. <laughs> um, you, sometimes you get more punishment without getting the conviction because, um, you know, it's gotten to the point where the conviction is so much more of a punishment than, than the punishment. You know, we used to think of the punishment as how much time you do, or the fact you have to be on probation, the fact you have to do community service or whatever the case may be. And, and sometimes you, it's a, it's a better disposition all around to be able to, um, get that side of it 
um, and not get the conviction because you, you get the punishment, so to speak, and you get the defendant gets the lesson, so to speak, and gets a second chance, so to speak. And and we do the same thing when it comes to if it's even if it, even if it is a conviction, you know, I tell the staff, you know, if if you're waffling between active time and not active time, just just fall on the not active time. Same thing between felony and misdemeanor. You know, if, if you got to think that much <laughs> about it, it, it's 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 hard to make a wrong decision by going by going with the going with the lore. So, um, uh, so that's that's the type of things that uh, that I try to impart in the decisions that I that I try to make. Um, uh, that um, we should only be seeking a conviction if it's if it's truly appropriate and necessary only should be seeking a felony conviction if it's necessary and only should be seeking active time if it's necessary um, so when you're hiring ADAs do you have them you know do you hire people who buy into that philosophy on the front end or is it something where you bring in someone at law school and you try and mold them to, to carry that out well, well it, it, it depends I mean certainly if you you know what you're hiring for can de- can determine whether you're bringing in somebody who has experience or or not, I would say that I've, I've had the opportunity to hire I want to say four people uh, that had some significant amount of experience, and yes, in those people, you 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 do look for um, uh, that 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 type of attitude because you know probably most young law school graduates, all of them can be can be molded but to be, <laughs> but to be honest with you you're looking for a sense of that in them too right um and so um it, it's it's just you probably have want to be more sure <laughs> if you're if you're hiring someone with with experience when it when it when it comes to that and 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 how they think of a prosecution and a lot of times you can get to that by just asking open-ended questions because you know, everybody's smart. They can figure out why, you, why, why you're asking, asking stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. But I mean, other than that, what I'm looking for, um, and, and prosecutors are people who can exercise good judgment, um, people who can keep an open mind, um, people who can, um, quite frankly, let a lot of things roll off their back. Right. Well, let, let's talk about that. So I want to talk specifically about the Confederate Monument case. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that are listening, We've talked about this case in several different episodes. The monument is actually right across the street from my office. I used to walk by it all the time. But for background, back last summer on August 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, there was something called a Unite the Right rally, which was supposed to be the the alt-right coming together to be normal, whatever else. A bunch of Nazis walking around with tiki torches and everything. Most of you have probably heard of it. And then... Later that day, uh, a white supremacist actually drove a car through the protesters deliberately and killed one person and injured several more. Two days after that, in the middle of the week, folks here in Durham gathered around the Confederate Monument, which is in front of what we call the old, old courthouse. So we're currently in the current courthouse. Before that was the old courthouse that we used when I started practicing. Across the street from that is an even older courthouse and now houses the county offices. And those protesters gathered uh, someone climbed up a ladder, put a, uh, I guess it wasn't a rope, it was a some kind of cabling, mm-hmm. and basically tore the monument down. It was all over video and everything else. The sheriff's office charged a bunch of folks with a variety of charges, including several felonies. And I'll be honest with you, I was very harsh on the sheriff when that happened. I had a thread on Twitter explaining that there was no conceivable way 
that the state could prove those felonies when the very next morning there was a press conference that the sheriff had talking about how peaceful everything was. So I, I was not impressed with those charging decisions. A bit of irony there. <laughs> right, right. But what's interesting to me is that a few days later on the 18th, you had a press conference mm-hmm. in the courthouse, and I saw it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't very long. It was just a few minutes. But the, the two things out of all the stuff you said really stood out to me as very unusual for a DA. The first one was you brought up the context of the moment that we were in, mm-hmm. noting the attack in Charlottesville, noting the history of the Confederacy, and also noting that in North Carolina, there is no democratic process for removing that statue. If the General Assembly decreed that Durham must put up a statue of Jefferson Davis tomorrow, we're obligated to do that. There's no way of doing that through a democratic process. And then you also got into, you didn't say it explicitly, but you basically said that the felonies they were charged with were overboard. You know, that you were going to ensure that people were appropriately punished for really destroying public property. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you didn't think it was appropriate to really destroy their lives with the collateral consequences of a felony conviction. Mm-hmm. You had to know when you had that conference, I was going to piss some people off. So I guess yeah. my question is, why did you have the press conference? What was going through your mind? I mean, I thought it was awesome. I'll disclose. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a great thing. But it's so rare to see an elected district attorney get out front on a situation like that and come at it the way you did? A few reasons. I, I thought there needed to be some leadership shown. And and that's not to criticize any other moves that any other leaders had had made, but I thought it was a bit chaotic. And, and somebody needed to put some context around what was going on. Also, I thought because of certain comments that had been made, it could it could have been taken or understood by some people that some comments were being had been made, you know, for me, um, or the lack of speaking out on on certain things would would have been tacit approval on certain things. So I, I, I thought I needed to do that um, as the district attorney and leader leader of, uh, of this office as well. Um, the reason why I said the things that I said is because the reason people commit crimes is quite frankly always a factor in whether you charge and and in the punishment that you seek so I just think it's in things of a different nature like that and I say different because I don't know that there's quite been a case like this um, people don't think of the why um, or if they do think of the why they they just don't care mm-hmm. whereas if you know someone hurts someone bad and it's in the heat of passion, you know, if the law isn't taking care of what we can do, you know, people, you know, people think it has or should have some effect on what type of punishment uh, that, you know, that, that take, someone, take the motivations into right, account. Right. And 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 when you put all of that together, um, you put the, the type of community that we have, the fact that Charlottesville had just happened, the tenor of <laughs> what's going on in the country then and now, um I don't see how you don't, if you're going to speak on it, I don't see how you don't hit that head on at all, to be honest with you. So, um, and, and yeah, it was, it is a big thing that there is no appropriate measure for citizens to ask local government or petition local government uh, for removal of any type of historical monument. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, I'm sure most people think that that, historical was you, you can interchange that with a 
Confederate uh, monument because that's uh, under the that was the context under which that law was passed right. uh, to 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 protect those those things. But it it, it technically, I guess you can say, it protects. I won't note for the listeners what the monument wasn't put up until the 1900s. It was way right. after the Civil War, right? And it's on the grounds of a courthouse. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think all that all that went into reasoning for giving a statement, and also um, those things were appropriately part of the analysis the analysis of, of of what you charge. I mean, I think on its um, if you just get into the facts of the case. You can make an argument for for felony. It's not necessarily an easy argument to make. Um, you know, the key you, you hit on it. The, the the key term or the key issue being um, violence, right? Right. Um, and tearing a statue down is is dangerous. It's not necessarily violent, though. <laughs> I mean, we we do things or people do things all the time that are that are dangerous and not necessarily violent. But um. It, it, it's funny you said that because that that irony was not lost on me about the uh, about the, the the peaceful things and not necessarily the sheriff's com- comments that day, but uh, the reasoning behind uh, not intervening um, was to keep the peace. And you know, sure, we could all imagine situations where an officer or two could find themselves in a riotous situation and they're just overwhelmed and they don't do anything and they don't do anything. Um, but if you got several officers there and you don't intervene, you know, for the safety of individuals, it does put somebody in a difficult position to 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 argue that this was so violent, but not violent enough to intervene. Right. Um, and and I'm not saying that's an easy decision to make for a law enforcement agency um, at all. But but that's the but that's the the decision that we're left with or the facts that we are left with in, in the aftermath. So. Um, outside of the other reasoning, yes, that that that's a factual reason, just cold factual right. <laughs> reason. You'd be stuck trying to square that circle in front of a jury, and there's no you right. could theoretically do it, but odds are pretty slim. Right. Yeah. I, 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 yes, I would I, I would agree with it uh, with that with that assessment. I mean, it's sure you could. I think you can make the argument successfully all day that it's probable cause. Right. <laughs> um, but. I mean, we're lawyers. We can make an argument that it's not probable, <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, you get what you get what I'm saying. Right. But that, uh, but even though you said it um, and and use a comment sort of different than I did, but that that same exact irony um, wasn't lost on me and and, and was in my mind um, from the beginning. And so, even if you didn't have all these other things going on, um, and it wasn't a newsworthy item. And you had a law enforcement agency who that had a lot of personnel there and said we didn't intervene uh, to, to keep the peace and or, and or because we didn't want the violence to swell. Um, then, you know, an hour later, a day later, you got a prosecutor telling you to convict someone uh, of this riot. And, and, and in order to do so, you, you had to find that it's that their actions were violent. We can make arguments of, of how both could be can exist in the same place, but. Practically, I don't think people would. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So y'all, your office proceeded on the misdemeanors. Some in some of them, in some of them, not not all of them. True. Uh, so at the very least, we had three trials in February, where they were prosecuted really for misdemeanor destruction of property, which what it, was what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, they tore down a statue that had theoretical value of a few thousand dollars. The outcome for those cases 
uh, ended up in the defendant's favor. So yes. two of them were dismissed by the trial judge, Fred Battaglia. A third actually went all the way to a verdict where he found that person not guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you issued a statement dismissing the rest of them. You said, mm-hmm. look, we've had three of these turn out not in our favor. I'm not going to waste taxpayer money continuing to prosecute. Right. And again, it's something that we're, from my standpoint, as a guy who is a, you know, functionally conservative libertarian, you know, defense attorney, mm-hmm. I think that's great. I thought that was a fantastic statement. But it really upset a lot of people who really like their Confederate monuments. So I, I guess my question is, again, what is your thought process in coming out, you know, and in, in dismissing the cases outright and issuing that statement? Well, I made that decision as as a lawyer, you know. And let me first say, you know, some people have said, you know, you don't, you don't try your weakest cases first. Part of me says, well, how would they know since I didn't try the other five? Um, and, and I would say those were not the weakest, the weakest cases. Um, and I think some people have thought, you know, why didn't you try? Um, and I won't, I won't say her name out of respect for her. Why, why, don't, why don't you try the individual who was putting the rope around putting, the, putting, the, putting the rope around it? Um, um, for any number of reasons, thinking that 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 was a stronger case, and maybe it was, um, and maybe that was the strongest case. But I don't think we'd be sitting here in a good place if we tried all eight and one of them got one of them got convicted. When um, we can see and, and identify, in my opinion, from the video, at least a few others or several or, or, or several others. Um, sure, if a lot of us commit a crime and only one of us gets caught, that's one thing. But I don't think people in our community can sit here and say that they think only one person got caught. Right. <laughs> and so in that situation, if one per, if only one person would have gotten convicted, I don't, I don't know that that would have been, uh, that would have been the best thing. So even thinking about it in that context, if I had to make the decision over again, I, I, I still would have done it. But other than that, even if that was the only case of the remaining five that you could, um, that you could distinguish, we, we still have the same evidence. We still have the same judge and a, agree or disagree with a judge's verdict or a judge's evidentiary ruling, it makes the most sense um, as a lawyer, it makes the most sense as um, the, the DA who's charged at making those decisions, makes the most sense as the DA who's charged as a steward over these resources um, to make the decision that I did. And so that's why I did it. Got it. And, and for the listeners, as some background, as part of that trial, there were two sets of videos that were the evidence. One of them was from the media, was my understanding, and the other one was actually taken by, is it the security manager for Wake County? Is that his title? Uh, yes. So uh, Well, yes, uh, something of that sort for Durham County, of course. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So the, essentially the videos that the, the media had was easy to identify people, but the judge decided they were inadmissible because they had been edited, whereas the video taken by the Durham County security guy was not as useful because for good parts of it, he's got the backs of people's heads. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big con- a contribution into why they had the result they were, is that those videos weren't coming in as mm-hmm. substantive evidence but for illustrative purposes only. Yeah. Um, after that happened... The judge, and, and I'm going to, you know, I know that you can only go so far in your commentary because your staff has to work with this guy regularly, uh, but Judge Battaglia went to the Durham County Republican Party and talked with them about his decision, and he really threw the ADA under the bus. He called her a third string, mm-hmm. uh, well, didn't expressly say it. What he said yeah. is like, you're a UNC basketball team and you put your third string folks in. Yeah. Uh, he asked why you weren't there. 
And for people like me reading those comments, a couple things jumped out. One, I don't think it's your job as the elected DA to prosecute vandalism cases. I think that's a, a wildly stupid use of your time. If you're going to actively prosecute, focus on murderers, rapists, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But then on top of it, I've had cases against ADA Cooper. She didn't seem like third string to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess, and then on top of that, you have kind of the the racial component to it. You have a white judge up for re-election and a white sheriff up for re-election, both of them throwing under the bus your mm-hmm. black prosecutor and you yourself as a black man. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it seemed very like unusual politically, but not unusual for Durham. Like if I was going to mm-hmm. expect some kind of mess like that, this would be the county where I'd see it. But yeah. what went through your head when all that came out? Because that just seemed odd for yeah. a judge to make those comments. Well, you know, it's in to some degree the conclusion I came to, you know, may have been easy for me because when it comes to myself, I try not, for lack of a better term, play the race card. You know, you try to try to be cognizant that it's there. But just me personally, when it when it comes to comes to me, it's it's a lot easier to see <laughs> to see it when it comes to other people. And and certainly I'm not a woman, so I don't it's hard for me obviously it would be hard for me to put myself in a position of, of any woman. Um and so when something for the way that I think comes at me and it, and it feels like it has a racist or feminist component, then, you know, it must be, <laughs> you know. And, and and so calling someone out for that, no matter how clear it might be, is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. But at the same time, it couldn't have felt like it was the more right thing uh, to do. So what I was, I was thinking a lot of things. You know, first of all, I was thinking through all of this, I had not criticized the sheriff's department, had not criticized the judge. And, you know, I've never criticized a law enforcement officer or agency, even to a victim or, or, or whatever the case may be, because I don't know what is to be gained by that. You don't have to go into court too many times to be disappointed in a decision that a judge makes or a decision that a jury makes. Um, but that's the process. So I, I don't think we should be in the business of criticizing them either. Um, but the thing is, I don't I don't know why a judge would ever be critical of lawyers in the case mm-hmm. uh, to anybody. And I think you have, even though judges answer to the public in the sense the way we do, they have rules that keep them from having to answer <laughs> to the public in in ways that 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 we don't as as uh, as as prosecutors. So none of that was was lost on me um, as far as the the comments made about going to the courtroom or or having someone more experienced you know it wasn't wasn't lost on me that miss cooper had more experience doing what she did than the judge had experience doing what he did. <laughs> <laughs> you know that you know that that wasn't lost on me either but um you know um uh, you know i believe she had close to if not five years as a as a lawyer at the at the time and, and certainly more than three years three and a half four years as a prosecutor um, at the time, which, you know, you could come back and ask me, isn't that overqualified to, to, to be prosecuting in... What's in, basically in, a petty in, vandalism in, case. Yeah, in, in, in district court. Um, but I, but she was chosen in part because she is so qualified and because there was some attention put to it and because uh, she is not yet the 10-year, 15-year prosecutor who is, who is doing the major rape cases and the um, 
um, and, and homicides and things like that, even though she certainly prosecutes cases on a regular basis at a higher level than that. I mean, even mm-hmm. up to Class D felonies. So um, that was uh, particularly um, uh, difficult, to, difficult to hear. Uh, but that was the way I saw it, an attack on an employee in regards of who the employee was uh, that needed to be addressed. It was an attack on this office that needed to be addressed. And, you know, the, and I tried to speak to that uh, appropriately and in a as classy a way as, 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 as I could and, and just tell the world that if the worst thing that anyone's going to say about me is uh, signing Amisha Cooper a case, then I must be the best person to do anything ever because that's that's a great decision. Got it. So you're running for re-election. Mm-hmm. The when is the primary? When is election? When does voting happen? Uh, voting starts early. Voting starts April 19th, this Thursday, and um, the election day, the Tuesday, is May 8th. Got it. So you have two people running against you in the Democrat primary. Yes, there sir. is no Republican, so whoever wins the primary will be the DA. Yes, I, I, I'm not a Democrat, can't explain to any of the listeners the intricacies of the Democratic primary, but you have one person who seems to be running to your right and one person who seems to be running to your left. Mm-hmm. What is your, what's your main pitch to the voters for why you should be reelected? Um, honestly, my record. Like I said, I've, I've, I've tried to be a thoughtful prosecutor and, and tried to make sure our, our prosecutors are, are, are thoughtful in achieving balance. And understanding that we have to make decisions that that protect, but we also are charged with making uh, decisions that, that that balance what's appropriate for the defendant, also. And um, you know, my my slogan is uh, pursuing truth and, and preserving justice, and you know that's what we've been about. You know, and I start with with something that you started with and um, earlier. You know, stability. You know, we've achieved and maintained stability, and that's important because regardless of what your agenda is, you can't achieve it if you don't have stability. Um, and so um, that's that's important. But what we've done is we've concentrated on the violent crime. Uh, there are two more prosecutors who prosecute violent crime than there was when I when I took office, and we don't have any more prosecutors <laughs> than we had uh, during that time. So, so we've diverted resources to... Uh, to that, and we quite frankly we've diverted it away from the minor prosecu- drug cases, and drug like drug that. cases, and things like that, because we only have one prosecutor whose major duties is to prosecute felony drugs. Um, uh, so, so of the um, of the thirteen prosecutors that we have prosecuting felonies, um, twelve of them prosecute felonies against people. Nine of those twelve prosecute almost exclusively prosecute violent crime, and 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 all of the other four um, have. A minor amount of violent crime uh, to to prosecute. So that's what we we've we've concentrated on. Um, but we've also done other things that are that are that are big uh, to to helpfully lessen the effect of um of the criminal criminal justice. You know, during my tenure, the misdemeanor diversion program started. Mental health court started. Um, and was and was implemented. Amnesty Day, you know, restoring licenses. We've done that and restorative justice. You know, those those type of things. So, you know, it, it's it's good when you can run for re-election and and, and run on what you have done, um, and not just on what you will do. And and so, so that's my that's my pitch. Um, these things that we've done, they are innovative and, and, and they are different, but the biggest thing is they are to the benefit 
of all the people in Durham. Got it. So if people want to help out, where should they go? How can they find you if they want to help your campaign? Um, you cer- certainly uh, have a um, website, and that's uh, get there two ways. Um, reelect Roger Eccles, DA dot com or elect Roger Eccles, <laughs> da dot com um, have a Facebook um, uh, page um, so that those those are the the ways uh, online that 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 anyone can um, can help um, certainly um, people can help by voting for me but they can help by um, if they if they want to vote for me if they support me spread the word through email word of mouth. Twitter. <laughs> it was like Twitter in this case, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Facebook or or, or or whatever, whatever the uh, the the effective way um, can be to uh, get the word out to people you know, people who trust you and trust your your opinion. Uh, so. Fantastic. Well, Roger, thank you very much. I appreciate you giving us some time, and uh, good luck in the primary in a few days. All right, thank you. Take care. All right. So, folks, that was my interview with Roger Eccles, the elected district attorney for Durham County, North Carolina. The website is reelectrogerecclesda.com. We'll give you a link in the show notes. But the main thing is, if you live in Durham, make sure to vote for him. If you know someone who lives in Durham, make sure they vote for him as well. I appreciate y'all listening to it. I'm sorry about the audio. One of these days, I will get the hang of doing uh, in-person interviews with the mic so it sounds a little bit better. have not quite mastered that art form yet, but we'll get there. So that concludes this episode of Fiscum All. On behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you all so much for listening. Have a fantastic week, and we will talk to you next Monday on what will be the not-quite-one-year anniversary of the podcast. Take care. <laughs>